I'm excited um, about the Word of God. I am always excited about the Word. There's really nothing else that is that there is that satisfies, that nourishes, and that gives us the kind of bread of life that we need, like the Word of God right here can do. And uh, and so I love being able to share truths here and and to be able to let that truth transform us in our life. The power, the word of God is powerful in the fact that it's transformational. That when we hear it and we receive it with an open heart and that seed takes root in the soil of our heart, it can begin to grow and produce something in our lives that bears fruit, but it's transformational. And the fact that it purges out some of the iniquities or the you know, uh, taintedness of the world that we walk in and begins to reveal and fill us more full of the things of the nature of God. And that's what we need is to have our thoughts align more with his thoughts, to have our ways be more of his ways. And we need him to help us to do that. We can't do it on our own. And he's given us the word to lead us into that place. And so, you know, we started last week um, kind of getting into a message series that really we're, we're going to cover a lot of things and we started last week talking about the subject of hell which is really interesting because you know as soon as you're like hey we're going to be talking about hell people are like oh whoa okay you're one of those preachers all right and uh and believe it or not you know i i'm not that i don't believe in that kind of fire and brimstone type of teaching that's just pointing fingers at people and you know that that's a thing of the past a lot I think in the church but it's a place that some people have been exposed to and have been hurt or harmed by and I just have this crazy theory that when you take something like hell and you preach it the right way and you teach it the way the Bible speaks about it it actually encourages us it actually empowers us and gives us hope and brings a joy to our soul because it's a part of what the Word of God gives us, right? I mean, how many know we need everything that's in this book? We don't teach a preferential gospel. We don't have a comfort theology. We say if it's in this book, then we subscribe to the whole thing and we need every bit of it, not just bits and pieces of it. I mean, the Bible teaches that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, which means inspiration of God means to be God breathed. His spirit, his breath breathed inspiration into the prophets and then they recorded it. But it, if it's his breath, if it's him, he's breathing the scripture, then that means his life is in it. His nature is in it. And God's life and nature are always good and always powerful. And we need that. Jesus said, every man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So let me just highlight every word. That means everything in this Bible, the things that get us excited, that when they, we hear them, they provoke us to want to jump and leap and shout. And also the things that when we hear them, we're kind of like, oh, that's a hard thing to hear. But no matter how it affects us, when we receive it, it's all nourishment nonetheless. Are you with me? It all grows us, it all builds us, and we need every part of it, not just certain bits and pieces of that. And I think that we're just kind of in a day and age today where people are hungry. They're hungry for the truth. 
They're hungry for things that are going to bring answers to life and that are going to help solve questions that we have about eternity and what's beyond this world. And frankly, I have no hope in anything except the word of God to be able to give us those answers and to be able to direct our path. And so, um, so just to kind of summarize for you from last week in talking about hell, you know, I wanted, and I don't know, maybe some of you never even have heard some of these scriptures or had this taught this way before, but to just try to bring an awareness of what this place the Bible calls hell is like, what it's for, and why we need to know about that. And to just build off of that with also teaching about heaven and eternity and what that looks like for the believer. So if you're with me, say, I'm with you. So look to your neighbors say, we're going to get a handle on hell today. All right. That was kind of weird. All right. So, um, so when you read the Bible, it speaks about hell over a hundred times. In the Old Testament in Hebrew, we see the word called Sheol. In the New Testament, we see the Greek word Hades. And when it's translated into English, Oftentimes, we, it is translated into the word hell. That's just our English translation. But Sheol and Hades are essentially are the, mean the same thing, which is the underworld, and it's the place where departed spirits would go. Now, what you have to realize is that this place of the underworld looked different before Christ came and did the work that he did on the cross than it did afterward and how it does today. And so I just want to give you a simple illustration that kind of paints the picture. If this is the earth, the world, and then this is the underworld, that's really profound, right? And this is Sheol or Hades. And some people say, well, like if you dug down into the earth and drilled all the way to the center, like do you think you would see all that there? I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. And here's why I don't think so. Because angels and demons are a part of the spirit world, and they're real and among us, but we don't see them with our natural eyes, but they're there. And the interesting thing is, is that that spirit realm is actually the more real realm than the physical realm. And so this place under the earth does exist in the spirit realm for sure. Now, we read the story out of Luke chapter 16, where it talks about Lazarus and the rich man, and how Lazarus is in a place called Abraham's bosom, and the rich man is in a place that is called Hades, that is where torment is. So before, and Christ is speaking about this while he's walking the earth, so he hasn't done his work on the cross yet. So if you can picture it like this. There was this place, these two compartments, I guess, of the underworld, and one was Abraham's bosom, and the other one was the place of the underworld where torment and fire were called hell. So when people would die, their physical bodies would die, their spirits would go into one of these two places, okay? Now, this is an important part you need to know. The spirit of a man is eternal we are made up of body physical man mind our thoughts our emotions our intellect our faculties 
and spirit. So there's essentially like three parts of how God makes us. And the body, the physical body, we know perishes. From dust you came to dust you shall return. And decomposes and it's, it's gone. It's dust. But the spirit man lives forever. It's eternal. It is never fully annihilated, if you will. And the place where our spirits go is going to depend on the message that we hear or don't hear in this life while we walk this earth. And that, of course, is the message of the gospel and the message of Jesus. So prior to Jesus, the Bible speaks about people who, when they died, it says that they died in faith, many of them. The people of God, the nation of Israel, uh, those who were God's children, they died in faith, meaning that there was a prophecy that was all through the ages of a Messiah that would come and that would bring redemption to bring man back into relationship with God once more. So if they had that faith that that was coming, that the Messiah was going to be the answer, then they died in faith, hence their spirits would go to this place called Abraham's bosom. If they died in rebellion of God's word and of his, te of his prophecies, then this is the place that they would go. And what's really important to, to take note of is that originally when God created man and Adam and Eve in the garden, he created us with the plan and the purpose to have relationship with him and to live intimately with him for all of eternity. That's why there was the tree of life that provided nourishment to Adam and Eve so that they could live forever. But when Satan tempted them and they fell into sin, then that whole condition of relationship was sabotaged and the Bible says that nothing that's tainted or defiled, no sin, can ever enter into heaven. So that whole condition changed. And now after that fall in the garden, until some sort of solution could be brought to redeem man and cleanse him of that condition of sin that he was now born into the world with after that, then there wouldn't be a way for us to enter into heaven and live in heaven with God for all of eternity. And that's what all of the prophecies for thousands of years about a coming Messiah was pointing to. Is everybody with me so far? So when Jesus came, you got to see, Jesus was in heaven. He was in the beginning. He's uncreated. All things were created in him and through him. And so the Bible says in the book of Ephesians that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. So God, you have to realize how significant this is. Jesus left his place on high in heaven and came down, descended, if you will, to the world and was born the virgin birth. And he walked on the earth for some 33 plus years and he ended up fulfilling his whole mission, which was going to the cross, suffering and dying, and then he was risen from the dead, we know, after three days, and then he ended up ascending back to heaven after that, after 40 days of walking the earth, or being on the earth and appearing to men in resurrected form. Now, last week I was very thorough in showing you what happened in these three days between the death. We know that when Jesus was on the cross, it says that he breathed his last 
or gave up the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave up His Spirit. And that He was seen in resurrection form three days later. But in that three-day period is the whole key to everything that he did to fulfill the final work so that the condition of man would be changed forever after that if we would receive the message of the cross. The Bible says uh, Jesus himself spoke to his disciples and he said in Matthew chapter 12 that just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly or the heart of the earth or the underworld for three days and three nights. So what did he do when he was down there? We know from Colossians chapter 2 that it says he actually disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them. So he went down into hell where Satan's fallen angels and demons and and all of the departed spirits who died in faith were, and he disarmed or divested Satan of his authority that man had given over or relinquished to him in the garden. He took that back from him and then gave that back to us if we would accept Jesus in his work in faith. It also says in the book of 1 Peter 3 that he preached to the spirits who were in prison. Now get this, this is crazy. But he, when he did that, he freed all of those departed spirits that were in this place of the underworld known as Abraham's bosom. We know that because in Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus died on the cross, it says that there was an earthquake and that the graves burst open and spirits of those who had died were actually seen in the city. A lot of people don't even know that that happened. Isn't that, you know that whole, what's that movie, I See Dead People? Like, this brings kind of a different meaning to that, you know? And, uh, and so imagine you're walking around, Jesus dies on the cross, there's a big earthquake, and now all of a sudden a bunch of the saints who have died are walking around in the city. Their spirits are there. Well, we know that this is a part of the work that Jesus did, and then he ascended after he was done back up to heaven and now, at this point, when we die, our physical bodies die, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So now when we pass from this earth, guys, praise God, our spirits go directly to be with Him in heaven because He has cleansed us through His blood and now we are clean and we have the right to enter into heaven into the presence of God for all of eternity after that. Is everybody with me so far? All right. So now that we've sort of caught up from that from last week, I want to give you a few things that we really can draw from that I think are important for us to understand about what the message and teachings around hell give us that we need in order to move forward in our life with the calling and the purpose that God has for us. Because we have a mission and we have an assignment. Now you hear me talk a lot about God's created us all for a purpose, for a destiny, and that it's unique. He's given us gifts and he wants to use us to do a great and mighty thing. And it's beautiful because every one of us have that individual 
plan that God has created us for. It says that he knew us in our, before we were in the mother's womb and he fashioned the days for us. And, and so that plan that is all of our own destiny is a part of one big plan that God is at work in accomplishing, which is to bring people who are lost and dying into a relationship with him so that they can spend eternity with him and not apart from him. So I think that's important to note, to say, okay, God's got a plan for my life. He's got a destiny for me. Well, part of what you need to know about that is that that is meant to help build the kingdom of heaven in the way you walk that out. It's meant to fit into God's overall plan to help people who are dying, who don't know Christ, who are going to spend eternity apart from him, to hear the saving message of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, and to have a relationship with God that will save their soul for all of eternity. Every one of us have a part in that plan. That's why Jesus said, you know, uh, you need to lose your life in order to gain it. He's saying, abandon your own plan and, I, and now come and follow me for the plan that I have for you. And so when we read the story in Luke 16 about Lazarus and the rich man, one of the things that it said is when Lazarus was trying, or uh, when the rich man was wanting to get out of the place of torment in hell where he was, and he was wanting to go to where Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, it says that he could not pass through. It says there was a great gulf that was fixed, and those who were in hell couldn't pass through to Abraham's bosom, and Abraham's bosom couldn't pass through to hell. Why is that important? Because that really settles a very big question that a lot of people have about what happens after they die. You see, we have this life, these days on this earth to make a decision to accept Christ and to receive the message of the cross. Once we leave this earth, that decision can no longer be made. It's not something in the afterlife that we have the opportunity because it even says about the rich man that he wanted to go he didn't want to remain where he was but it was too late for him after that and that should compel us to live our lives in a way and where we're conveying and we're witnessing to people the good news of the cross because we recognize guys time is limited time our days are numbered and time is limited for us for our lives to be able to have this kind of impact and for people who haven't made that decision to be able to make that decision to be with Jesus forever um, and now here's the thing a lot of times and I don't know, I don't really understand this, but I know we all have this human nature where we get into this place sometimes where, you know, people, uh, well, let me put it this way. It's not our place to condemn anybody or to judge anyone into the, the place of hell uh, as far as eternal punishment. Our, our whole mission in God's heart is to use us to bring the message of hope. That's why Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. He, when Jesus came, this first time he came, he came to save people and set them free. Now, when he comes again, 
which we're going to talk a little bit about that today, when he comes back, the return of Christ, that is when he brings judgment. He's the executioner of that, not us, and that is when he brings the judgment. But when he came into the earth and went to the cross, he came to save people and set them free. And we are still in that dispensation of time, the church era, as teachers and scholars would call that. Meaning our mission and our assignment is still to bring that good news, that saving news of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Now, if we're not careful, this is what this can turn into. Go to Luke chapter 9 and listen to this story. We've got some of Jesus's best boys, some of his tightest dudes, James and John. All right, and listen to how they react to a village of people who don't want to hear the message of Jesus. Verse 51. It came to pass that when the time had come for him to be received, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is Jesus. And he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So the people in the Samaritan village did not receive the message of Jesus. They didn't accept him as who he said he was. So when the disciples James and John saw this, they said to the Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? Seems like they're a little bit excited about this, actually, right? And Jesus turned to them, and he rebuked them. He had to rebuke them for this thought. He said, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And I think sometimes, you know, we can get into a point where it's almost like people, people deserve what they get kind of thing. Or, or in the church, that, you know, there could be a teaching that's almost like, you, you deserve what's coming or, or whatever you get. And we see here from the way James and John kind of got zealous, like, hey, master, you know, they're not accepting you. Let's, let's bring down fire and just let's burn them all up, you know. They, it's like this is their, their thinking around this thing. And Jesus is like, dude, like, that's not why I came. What's wrong with you? You know, I had to rebuke it. He had to rebuke them. And then he had to say, look, I came to save people. That's what your heart needs to be. The heart of the father is that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And that needs to be our heart. So when we see this situation where people could spend eternity apart from God, it should compel us to want to love them and to share great news with them and in no way be any kind of judgment upon them for condemnation that may come if they don't depart from those ways. That's not our place. Our place is to love them and share the good news of what Jesus came to do for them. Does that make sense? And the other thing it says here is that the rich man had these brothers that he wanted to see uh, Lazarus go to and tell them about this place of punishment so that they didn't get there. He wanted, them to, he wanted them to go and warn them about that. And I think this is interesting because this is one of the scriptures that we can actually draw from that when we leave this world, we recognize family members. We see our fam there is a reunion in heaven 
that we will experience because this guy's spirit is in Hades, in hell, and he recognizes those that are his family after he's gone. And praise God, this brings us comfort that there's a glorious reunion that's coming for all of us when we leave this earth and we go to be with those in the kingdom of heaven as one big family for all of eternity. And even David said this. He seemed to have some kind of understanding in his, in his days where he said after his son had died at a young age and he had prayed for him to be healed and he wasn't. And then he went on to be with the Lord. David said after he left the temple from praying for him to be saved, he said, I can, he can no longer come to me, but now I will go to him. So even David had that understanding. And so I think that that's an awesome comfort that we can draw that, yeah, we're, we're in, in this life, in this world, walking together and living together, but there's a bigger plan beyond this life where we're all going to enjoy paradise and eternity together if we receive that message of Jesus and of the cross. Amen? And then the other thing that I just want to touch on with that story is that it says that when uh, Abraham had heard that the rich man wanted him to send Lazarus to go warn his brothers, he said, it, it, it's not going to matter. They have Moses, they have the prophets, they have all the teachings. If they won't receive that, then they're not going to hear someone else that would go to them to try to convince them. That's important for you and I to hear, guys, because a lot of times we think that to be a messenger for God or to be an instrument for him We've got to have all of this knowledge or all these things figured out and be in this place where we, we're not really qualified until we get there to be used by God. And the thing that we recognize in this story is he's saying they have everything they need. Can I tell you something? You have everything that you need right here. The message of the cross, Jesus in him crucified, risen from the dead as the savior of the world and your testimony of how God saved you is everything you need to know to share the good news with anybody at any time and you can put your trust in that, that it will be penetrable and that it will be effective and that God can use that to restore lost people. I think that's so important because then that, in, that mobilizes so many more of us to be out there and to be ambassadors for this message of the gospel that Christ died to give us and to have us give to the rest of the world. Amen? So we see here that now, you know, whenever people die, their spirits go to be with the Lord in heaven and that there's still this place in the underworld of hell called Hades where those who are rebellious and reject the message of the cross where their spirits go. But there is a day that's coming that the Bible refers to as the day of the Lord, which is the return of Christ. Now, in a lot of the Old Testament prophecies, the prophets they could see in pieces and bits and a lot of the things that they were prophesying they fully couldn't even understand. So when they prophesied about a Messiah, this is what you have to realize, is that some of their prophecies spoke of the first coming, while a lot of the other prophecies spoke of a second coming. It's what some theologians refer to as the first advent and the second advent. So 
when we recognize that Christ has already come into the earth and set us free and that he will come again, it begins to make sense of a lot of those prophecies that didn't make sense until that work was fulfilled. So when it speaks about the day of the Lord, this is what's really awesome. And then you start to see the accuracy of Scripture and the consistency of Scripture begin to play out. Because in the book of Acts chapter 1, when Jesus did ascend back to be with the Father in heaven, it says that the angels appeared to him, to them, the disciples, and said, why do you marvel at this? The same way that you've seen Christ ascend and leave, in the same fashion he shall return. Which means in the sky, and, the, and, and we see that the sky will open up and that Jesus will come back and he will return and he'll be on a white horse and all of the armies of God will be with him which are all of the angels and all of those departed spirits who have went on to be with the Lord in heaven prior to his return. Praise God, if you know Jesus, if he's in your heart, you're going to have a front row seat to the most miraculous event that the world is ever going to know when the clouds, it says, it says that they rip and that they tear open and that Christ will return. And then at that point is when the judgment that he brings for all of the unbelievers, the, the fallen angels, and all from all the eras of time are judged for those evil works. And there is an eternal age that begins to set in after that. And I want you to go with me to just see a couple of these things before we finish today. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, it speaks about this day of the Lord. And... I can find it. Here's what it says in verses 1 through 4. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. So this speaks about the battle of Armageddon right here, the final battle. I'm going to probably get into that more next week. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished, because we know that there's great tribulation at the end for a period of about seven years before Christ returns, okay? And so there's great calamity on the earth during this time before Jesus comes back. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So what we see when Christ returns is that that final battle of Armageddon is actually not even really a battle at all that the Lord unleashes vengeance and all of the unbelievers are killed. There's no actual battle that even takes place between people of God and the people of Satan. It's just the Bible says that the angel sinks his sickle into the earth and reaps the harvest. It's just in a moment's no instance, all of the unbelievers that are on the earth are just destroyed at one time. And then on, in verse four, it says, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move northward and half the mountain shall move to the south. Now, Katie and I were in Israel last year and we were on the Mount of Olives and it's a breathtaking view because 
when you're on the mountain of olives, there's this valley that goes down and comes back up. And then on the other side is actually the temple Mount, or, or Mount Zion, where the temple that Solomon had built and the ruins of that exist. But the Mount of Olives is actually the place where Jesus ascended back to be with the Father in heaven where the angels said he will return in like manner as you see him leave. And it says here that when, he, when Christ returns, that the Mount of Olives is ripped in half and it says that he, in another place, he sets his feet down on the mountain. Now, this is crazy, but listen to this. When we were there, we were talking to our tour guide and some of the people that were a part of the group, and they said that geologists have actually surveyed this land over there on the Mount of Olives, and there's actually a fault line that runs right through the Mount of Olives. So it's very feasible that an earthquake could rip that whole geographic, that topography, and literally like rip it in half. And so when Jesus comes back, it says he puts his feet down on this mountain and overlooks uh, the earth and the battle, and that's when the angel sinks his sickle into the earth and the harvest is brought forth. Now, I want to tell you about that in just a second, the harvest, and that's what we'll end today. But this is very interesting. This is just interesting. I want you to hear this and think about this. When we hear about the end days, the times, the seasons, the Bible says it's not for us to know the hour. We don't know when it will actually happen. But it does say that there are signs and indications that lead to that. It says a lot about earthquakes and natural disasters and things of that magnitude. Interesting to note that we have experienced more hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, wildfires, tornadoes at more devastating levels over the last number of years than we've ever seen in all of history. That's fact. And when you look at what the Bible speaks about with the way that the, the conditions of the earth as it draws towards the end of Christ's return, it speaks of it as uh, the beginning of sorrows, it says, which is a term that's used to describe labor pains for women. Now, if you've had children, you can relate to this. I've observed this many times now, okay? And uh, so when a woman obviously is going to have a baby, she goes into contractions, and the contractions build, become closer and closer together, and then eventually that pain at the very end that is, is when the child is finally birthed, and then it's over. So when it describes a lot of these cataclysmic events, it describes them as they increase in frequency and in devastation and magnitude in which they occur, which we've been seeing in the world for a number of years now, right? And there's also this thing that geologists, um, this is, you can research all this, but it's called the ring of fire. Now, there is a shelf or a continental shelf that goes and connects like a whole bunch of the continents and it almost forms like a horseshoe if you look at a global map and it's all connected together around the world. 90% of the earthquakes that have occurred in history that we know of have happened on the ring of fire. 75% of volcanoes that are active or non-active sit on the ring of fire. So it's a theory, it's a theory that if a chain reaction would occur, if some sort of earthquake or uh, event 
would happen that could create a chain reaction of events that could ultimately be an apocalyptic type of condition in the world. I just say that to say that that's very interesting. And it's interesting because the Bible says that there is a great earthquake at the end that rips the Mount of Olives in half and Jesus returns and, he's, and his feet come down on the mountain and he's overlooking Mount Zion, the original site of the temple right here in Israel. Now this last part I think will blow you away. We know that when it talks about Christ's return, it speaks of it as a great harvest in which the angel seeks, sinks his sickle into the earth and he begins to reap the harvest. And the Bible says in other places, the wheat is separated from the chaff. So the wheat is the good parts of the plant and the good parts of the product that can be used. And the chaff is the part that can't. And that chaff is actually thrown into a fire and burned. The site of the temple where Solomon built it sits up on that Mount Zion and David, Solomon's father, originally bought that piece of property and he bought it from a guy named Aruna. And do you know what that piece of property was when Aruna owned it before David bought it and then Solomon built the temple? It was a threshing floor. It was used to separate wheat and chaff and when Jesus returns and he stands on a ripped apart Mount of Olives overlooking the world and the nations of the world that have gathered together for one final battle in Armageddon and the angel sinks his sickle into the earth and he reaps the harvest the wheat and the chaff are separated and chaff goes into the fire and that's where we know that the eternal state of those who do not receive the message of the gospel and of Jesus Christ is one that the Bible speaks to of a place of eternal torment, of fire, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the whole motivation behind this for us as believers, guys, is to understand that while we're here and while people are in this world with us, there's still time to make a decision to live for Christ. There's still time to receive that saving message of the gospel. And I believe that God has given us so much of this information in the scriptures about heaven and about hell because we need to understand it and we need to hear it. Because if we do, then what it provokes in us is a missional mindset that is concerned and cares and has a heart to see people who are perishing saved and won for Christ and that we will seek to be used in a way that aligns with God's plan and purpose for us so that we can help bring that message of hope to people. And I love it because this message of eternity, if it's in our heart, is a message of hope and of a glorious future that we will have when we leave this earth. That's why a lot of people, when they teach about this, they call it the blessed hope. Because can I tell you something? If you know Christ and his Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you, that's your story. That's your story and that's my story and that's how it ends, amen? We spend eternity with Jesus in heaven in paradise 
for, and reign with him for all of the eternal age after that. And so I just want to ask you today to think about this as we close. Am I living with the hope of eternity in my heart every day? Because if you do, it's how a guy like the Apostle Paul can say something that sounds very counterintuitive to probably our natural minds. He said, I would rather depart from this world and go to be with the Lord. He was, he, want, he was so hungry for heaven that he was actually ready to go before the Lord ever even took him. And he spoke about our affliction. Yeah, our team's gonna come back up and we're gonna just close with a worship song. But he spoke about affliction and trial and tribulation in the world and he called it a light and temporary affliction that doesn't compare to the glory which is yet to come. And guys, when we get a picture of heaven, of our future, our eternal state because of what Jesus has done for us. It weakens the enemy's ability to bring us down and to attack us and to rob us of hope, of joy, of peace, and of everything that God has given us to live with in a daily basis. It's like saying, you can hit me with everything you've got in this world and it doesn't matter because it's just a vapor and it's here today and gone tomorrow and I'm going to heaven for all of eternity in a perfect place because of what Jesus has done for me. And when the enemy can't get any more ground over you because you're in that kind of place in your faith, he has lost his ability to rob you of so much of what God has planned for you every single day. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me this morning?